The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 31st, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist, and as you can tell, this is not Mike Pesca. I'm Aisha Harris filling in for Mike today. Allow me to introduce myself. You may know me as a culture writer for Slate's Browbeat Culture Blog or as the host of the Slate podcast, Represent. On that show, I talk about film and TV from the perspectives of anyone who's not a straight white dude. So there's a story that was big in the news a couple years ago. I was very obsessed with it, have forgotten about it since, and now it's back in the news all of a sudden. What does it take for a cop who literally jumped the gun and murdered an innocent black kid without cause to be fired from his job? Just almost three years of an investigation and the revelation that said cop lied on his employment application before he killed the kid. So determined the special committee that was created by the Cleveland Police Department to investigate the 2014 killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice. In a police report released yesterday, Officer Timothy Lohman, who was not charged by a grand jury in 2015, was announced as having been fired. His supervisors at a previous police department declared him unfit to be an officer, and he was allowed to resign. But he didn't tell the Cleveland Police Department this in his personal history statement. Hmm. Of course, a firing is the least that could have happened to a guy who shot a kid within two seconds, per the video that went around the world, of pulling up to him in a public park. And it will come as small comfort to the family of Rice, who, like so many other victims of police brutality, have seen the court system fail them. But man, this just feels like a dig, the latest in a long history of examples of black bodies not mattering to law enforcement, of officers who have been allowed to remain on payroll in the midst of their deadly overreactions. But here's another story that gives me a little bit more hope. In Texas late last month, 15-year-old Jordan Edwards was killed by an officer while leaving a house party. Officer Roy Oliver was fired almost immediately afterward. In the nearly three years since Samir Rice died, Maybe public and political pressure is so strong that even if irresponsible police will continue to avoid jail time, they'll at least not be allowed to be police anymore. I guess that just goes to show how little hope there is to be had. Coming up on The Gist, I'll spiel on why we need a better phrase than woman problem to describe systemic sexism. But first, I'll talk to the Pulitzer-winning and Tony-nominated playwright Lynn Nottage. Reading, Pennsylvania, the year 2000. One of the steel town's factories has employed multiple generations of families on its assembly line for years. But now, rumors are spreading that management is looking to replace its hardworking bodies with new machines and cheaper labor in Mexico. The workers, with not much more to their names besides a high school degree, are frightened they could lose the only way of life they've ever known and cling desperately to what little hope they can muster as tensions rise. So goes Sweat. It's Lynn Nottage's brisk, invigorating exploration of the decline of the U.S.'s once-bustling blue-collar towns in the aughts. It's a play that kind of anticipates how we got Trump in 2016. And it's her first show to make it to Broadway. Welcome to The Gist, Lynn. Well, thank you for having me. So first, I'd just love for you to start off with 
How Sweat came to be. I know you started writing this and collecting stories around 2011. Can you expand upon where this idea came from and how we got to where we are now with Sweat on Broadway? Um, Sure. Sweat really began with a letter that I received from a friend who was in need. She wrote an email to about six of us, basically saying that she was in financial dire straits. She's a mother of two. She hadn't worked in about six months. She was struggling, but didn't want to let anyone on until the moment she sat down to draft that letter because Mm -hmm. she had really hit on hard times. And she said that the smile that she had um, worn for the last few months really was covering a great deal of pain. And I read the letter and it it broke my heart because she is one of my closest friends and someone who I saw on a regular basis. And I really didn't know the extent to which she was struggling. Mm -hmm. And that really sort of sent me on a much longer journey journey to figure out how economic stagnation was really sort of shifting the way in which we as Americans perceive ourselves. And that led me to Reading, Pennsylvania, which I happened upon in an article that was printed in the New York Times, which was just after census reports. And and Reading was listed as the poorest city of its size in all of America. And I found it really interesting that that city was in the, the Northeast, that it was a city that was very close to Philadelphia, that it was a city that was right at the tail end of, of the Belt in a city that really was representative of what was happening all across uh, America. What were the first steps you took in writing this? Because you're plucking from different people's lives and, and these stories. Um, you did a lot of interviews, correct? I did a lot of interviews. When I first began going to Reading, I really didn't know what story I was looking for. It really, I would describe it as a listening tour. I was there mm-hmm. to to try and help answer many questions that I had just about what was happening to our country as a a whole. And I really didn't find sweat until I, I sat down with a group of, of steel wor- workers, um, the majority of whom were middle-aged, the majority of whom were white men who'd worked at the same metal tubing factory for between 25 and 30 years mm-hmm. and who had assumed that they would retire from the, that factory with their pension plans and sort of live their lives, but found themselves suddenly locked out by management, which was really looking more toward the bottom line than toward the health of their workers. And that really, I think, shook them to the core. And when I was sitting in the circle with these folks, their narratives sounded very familiar to me as an artist who's very familiar with economic insecurity, as a person of color who understands that these are some of the struggles that we have wrestled with for a long time, economic insecurity. And sitting in that circle, I, uh, I found the play. As you were talking to these, these people, what were some of the answers? You say you didn't, you kind of went on a listening tour and you didn't go into it having any, you know, specific things you wanted to look for. But over time, what were some of the, the questions that you discovered that you wanted to know more about as you were talking to these people? Like, were there certain things that kept cropping up that you were like, oh, I wonder where is this kernel of, of, of experience coming from? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I heard repeatedly is that people clung to sort of a past notion of how their city should be, mm-hmm. and they really couldn't sort of project into the future, not understanding that a lot of the jobs which um, had been there for so long were, were gone and were not coming back and really um, were not equipped to sort of make that adjustment mm-hmm. to s- sort of the new world order. And so that's something that that I found is people's sort of unwillingness to look to the future and to really evolve in certain ways to allow them to um to fit into the new marketplace. Mm. I mean, you think about how much it costs to get up and go um and move to a new city. It's like you need the the cost of 
renting a moving van. You need a down payment for an apartment. You're talking about $5,000 to leave, and most people in their savings account don't have more than $800. So they become trapped in in their circumstances. Mm-hmm. You said earlier that most of the people you're talking to were white men. The way in which you were able to relate to them, I think that's sort of the the sort of conversation we've been having over the past few months about the fact that there's a lot of focus on the quote unquote white working class, but there's also a people of color working class that are also affected by these things. It's interesting. It's like most of the people that I spoke to were not white men. Oh, they weren't? No, the circle of of steelworkers that I sat in were white men, but Mm. Reading is a majority Latino city. And so Mm. I I spoke to really a large swath of people who all were in similar circumstances, which is, I I think, why um, Sweat is the play that it is. It really isn't about the white working class. It's about the working class in Mm -hmm. America and the way in which we begin to cannibalize ourselves when we're all sort of struggling for that same piece of pie. Were some of the people you interviewed, um, did they also express sort of, whether explicitly or subconsciously, did they express any sort of anxiety that felt racially motivated or even misogynistic in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I think that's where the the play comes from is that when people were pressed, I think the subtext was always race. Mm-hmm. Is the and you'd hear people say things like everything was great and then they came and you'd be like who is they yeah <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and but 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 it was fascinating yeah. how often I heard that. And I know that there are people in, in Reading sort of resent me for saying that. But when you're there, people are very open about the fact that it is a, a city that's very fractured along racial mm-hmm. lines, not just economic lines, and that people aren't really trying to bridge that divide. And there's a lot of blame being passed. What I really appreciated about the the show, even though obviously this has been in the works since 2011 and, you know, we're now just now we're all catching up to this idea, but the fact that you do have these characters who represent the different types of working class that we have. And especially with the character of Cynthia, you have her who at one point in the play decides, well, I'm going to try and move up and become management. She's been working since she was, you know, a teenager there, just like everyone else, mostly for, for the most part, has been uh, in the play. And she gets into a position of power and then she has to deal with not only being a woman of color in a position of power, but also leaving behind, quote unquote, her friend, Tracy, and getting a lot of the blame for what's happening with the the steelworker company. What did she sort of not necessarily represent to you, but how did you come to write that character? Well, well I think that Cynthia is really very representative of sort of a generation of of men and women, in particular African-American, whose parents came north during the Great Migration for better jobs and um, wanted their children to do better. And so I think that Cynthia is just an extension of that in that she's aspirational and, and that she's reaching. Too. And Chris is, is, yeah. is that, she, you know, they're both reaching for something more. And so the, the tragedy of the play is that um, the, the white characters resent her aspirations. They mm-hmm. resent that she wants a little more than um, what her parents had. Yeah, and I mean, that was... That really stuck out to me, the fact that, you know, Tracy and Jessica, who um, is another co-worker, and she's also white. She's played by Allison Wright, who I think a lot of listeners might recognize from the Americans. Um, But she 
you know, they both are just kind of like, eh, we're, we're stuck here. We can't really do anything about it. Whereas the black characters in the show, um, even Chris's father was, even though we see him as a defeated character now, he's a drunkard, he's not employed anymore. Like we, we know that he at one point was, was trying to resist and leading the union. Right. So that really stuck out to me. Yeah, I, I, re- I really want to explore the struggle of sort of the black working class to try and poke through that glass ceiling. And we see it sort of represented in the play in which all of those resentments really um, fight to keep Chris and Cynthia from attaining any form of success. And I think that that's really true here in America, that there's a great deal of of resentment when we as African-Americans aspire beyond what we're, quote unquote, supposed to aspire toward. Even though Tracy and Jason both say things that are very like they feel like rich from the comment section of any, <laughs> um, I don't know, alt-right um online publication they say things that you know we've been here you oscar you should go like go back to where you came from he's like i was born here i've lived here all my life at the same time there are moments where you know you see that they also it's very complicated and they have these relationships that cross those lines sometimes like Mm -hmm. even though their race becomes a very dividing factor once cynthia moves up into the company they still have a relationship that is complicated. I think what's really interesting in terms of the friendship of all of those folks is when there's abundance, that friendship can live and breathe in a very easy way. Mm-hmm. But slowly, when when their sustenance is taken away, people become desperate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's playing out in America r- right now is that we're really fighting for limited resources. And that's where the ugliness comes in. Mm-hmm. But as long as Cynthia and, and Tracy and Jesse have all equal access, they don't have a problem with each other. Right. That, that's so true. I hadn't even thought of it that way. The equal access is it's the, equal, the opportunity. It's the opportunity. But yeah. once that hierarchy begins to shift, that's when people become more desperate. Mm-hmm. That's when bitterness and resentment begin to seep in. And that's why the play takes a dark end. But it begins with the lightness. It begins with the easiness of that friendship. Mm. Because all of them um, go to work every day. They come. They cash their paycheck. They can take their vacations. They can live relatively comfortably but once that comfort level is is removed, I think that's where we see the desperation mm-hmm. and the ugliness. This play does not have any easy answers, just like in real life. But there are some people, myself included, who who wonder if the Trump supporters are just impossible to reach. I think a lot of the characters in this play would have voted for Trump. How do you feel well, about you that? You know, it's interesting because we always talk about the Trump supporters, and I don't think like anyone, it's not a monolithic group. Right. I think that they're really divided upon people who want very different things. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think that there's a level of, of, of the Trump supporter who are people represented in the play, who are fighting for what they believe is their piece of pie, that resent um, the encroachment of people who are different into their territory. Then I think there are people like there's someone who we interviewed and he said he voted for Trump because he wanted to keep his gun. He's like, I'm not sure about all of his policies, but I just want to keep my gun in my holster. So I think that there are many types of Trump supporters. And I think that what Trump was so successful at doing is finding a certain vocabulary that spoke to people's anxieties. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why he succeeded. Yeah. Your your show play reminds me of Get Out in that you both, we keep saying anticipated, but like in a way you 
could tell things were coming at a head while you like you and Jordan Peele were working on these two very different things, but also very similar in terms of like the way the country was moving. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that Werner Herzog, who's this documentary filmmaker, yeah. has a phrase which he says is the role of an artist is to keep their eyes open mm-hmm. when everyone else's are shut. And I think that what we were responding to is something that we were feeling, yeah. something that we were seeing but something that we felt wasn't reflected necessarily in all in the other media. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we were doing what our jobs are as artists yeah. is to reflect. Yeah. You have won two Pulitzer Prizes. The first was for Ruined. This one you've actually just won for Sweat. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're also nominated for three Tony Awards now. You know, a lot of artists say, I don't really care about winning certain awards or, you know, getting these sort of accolades, even when they've had tons of other great accolades like you have. It's surprising to me and to a lot of people. There's a New York Times article that pointed out that this was this play is the first one you've gotten on Broadway after 20 plus years and after being considered one of the you know foremost playwrights, contemporary playwrights we've had. Do you feel in a way, there's nothing nothing to wrong with this, but do you feel finally vindicated in a way to have your work on Broadway in a way that maybe the Pulitzer didn't or these other, you know, great reviews and whatnot uh, did not necessarily give you before as an artist? Well, it's, it's interesting. I don't know whether vindication is the correct word, but I certainly feel a sense of satisfaction mm-hmm. to enter into this commercial space because I never imagined that it'd be a place that I'd occupy, I feel satisfied that I can be there with this particular story and that I can have strong um, female protagonists that are representing on that stage, that it, it's a play that I feel is really representative of what's happening in America today. So all of those things I feel really great about. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, you think about the apotheosis of a theater career, and this really is it. It's like for all of the other accolades, People really don't think of you as being a playwright who succeeded unless you've been on Broadway. Yeah. It shouldn't be that way. No, it you know, and I can <laughs> tell you the difference between off Broadway and Broadway are really just a bunch of seats. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a hundred, a hundred and fifty seats that separates it. Yeah, but at the same time, those seats are like who you can get into the audience and who can see your work. And it's interesting to me that you said you couldn't envision yourself being on Broadway because you know. Even though you couldn't, you're now here. Maybe someone else, some other woman of color who's a playwright can now envision herself being on Broadway. Yeah, I mean, there are um, women of color, in, in particular African-American women who, you know, every other year yeah. <laughs> manage to get to Broadway. But one of the struggles is that we have and um, something that we don't talk uh, enough about is is keeping those plays there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Lynn Nottage is the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Sweat, which is currently running on Broadway. And now, the spiel. My conversation with Lynn ended with us talking about how she's just now getting to Broadway, despite 20-plus years of writing critically successful and culturally significant plays— A recent New York Times piece outlined the many ways in which this was ludicrous. In the story, Lynn appears alongside her former teacher, Paula Vogel. They're friends now and bonded by their similar career trajectory. Both have won Pulitzers, critical acclaim, but it took each of them until middle age to find serious commercial success, and they feel scarred by the process. Vogel is just now finding her place on the Great White Way as well. The dearth of female writers and directors is raising eyebrows in the film industry, too, 
most recently this past weekend at the Cannes Film Festival. Jessica Chastain was on the jury that judged the films in competition this year, and she made headlines for saying this at the festival's conclusion. The one thing I really uh, took away from this experience is how the world views women from the female characters that I saw represented. And it was quite disturbing to me, to be honest. I do hope that when we include more female storytellers, we will have more of the women that I recognize in my day-to-day life. Um, Ones that are proactive, have their own agencies, um, don't just react to uh, the men around them. They have their own point of view. In the apt and eloquent tweet of the typically apt and eloquent filmmaker, Ava DuVernay, say that, Jessica Chastain. Now I, like most of the world, have not yet gotten to see the films that made their grand entrance at Cannes, but it feels safe to say that we can take Jessica at her word that the representation of women on screen was overall dismal. Just look at the stats for Cannes first. This year, only three female filmmakers, Sofia Coppola, Lynn Ramsey, and Naomi Kawase, had films premiere in competition. There were 19 films in competition overall. And those three women are no strangers to the festival, having debuted films there before. Of course, there are some male directors who create fascinating roles for women— There's Jessica's fellow jury member, Pedro Almodovar, and Bong Joon-ho, who's Tilda Swinton starring Okja, also screened in competition at Cannes. But until more women are behind the camera, women in front of the camera will continue to suffer. This is nothing new. We've been having this conversation about Cannes for years and about the industry writ large for forever. But here is where I whittle this down a bit and make a semantic argument. The way in which this issue has been framed is wrong. Cannes has a woman problem. Hollywood's woman problem. Insert, any institution, company, industry has a woman problem. Just a couple of days ago, the Washington Post had a headline calling out the VA's woman problem. To me, even when the piece beneath such a headline places the responsibility on the appropriate parties, i.e. every facet of the system, from top to bottom down, the term itself shies away from that shared responsibility. That phrase seems to boil down to women are the problem, not Cannes itself. And that's not cool. Take festival director Terry Fromal's comments in 2016. He told Screen Daily, quote, what percentage of filmmakers in the world are women? According to a recent report, it's 7%. I've been saying this for four years now, but what you see in Cannes is a consequence, not the cause. More needs to be done in the film schools, the universities, and the production houses to favor women. And then you would see the results. This is a common sentiment among people at the top. The it's not me, it's you theory. The there aren't enough qualified women excuse. Yet even when women are qualified and make themselves readily available, the people with the power to do something about it don't often pick up the baton. To tie this back into Lynn Nottage, in that same New York Times piece, she expressed disappointment that the female artistic director of the off-Broadway Manhattan Theater Club, Lynn Meadow, didn't do enough to push for her previous play, Ruined, to move to Broadway. Nottage said, I feel that she understands that she made a mistake in not supporting the work of a woman when she could. And so I propose we stop framing these issues as a woman problem. Take a cue from a recent Vox headline, which called out the Marine Corps' quote-unquote toxic masculinity problem. And instead, call it Can's internalized sexism problem. Or, even better, Can's internalized sexism and unconscious racial bias problem. Sure, it's a mouthful, but let's put the onus where it belongs, 
which is on the entire system, of which can happens to be a pretty big and influential part. That's it for today's show. Chris Berube and Mary Wilson produced The Gist. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. I'm Aisha Harris, this is The Gist, and I've been filling in for Mike Pesca. Um Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>